How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the flower, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word, to reflect upon who you are and what you have done in history, to come to a greater understanding of your uh, love, your integrity, your grace. Uh, Father, we thank you that we have your word that reveals uh, you to us, that we may learn about you, that we may know uh, with certainty uh, your, your character, your attributes, your works in history that we may not be left at guesswork or trying to somehow uh, generate a knowledge of you from our own experience. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we study tonight and that they may challenge us uh, in our own spiritual life as the Holy Spirit makes these things real to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our review on the first 11 chapters in Genesis. And as I have said again and again, and we'll repeat two or three more times just to make sure you get this down and that it's embedded in the uh, little gray cells between your ears, Genesis operates on an outline that relates to two things, four events and four people. The first part of Genesis is an introduction, a preamble, as it were, to the entire book, which itself is an introduction to the Pentateuch. And the first section of four events is covered in the first 11 chapters. And you just have to remember these four things, and you've got it. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. That summarizes those first 11 chapters. If you just remember that, creation, fall, flood, Babel, you've got the first 11 chapters. The next part of the book covers chapters 12 through 50, and that focuses on four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Eight things. That's all you have to memorize, and you control the uh, outline for the book of Genesis. And that way you can think your way through Genesis. Now, as we've gone through this study, what I have done in these first 11 chapters is to provide some summary overviews as we got ready to teach each of the major sections. We had the section on creation with an overview, the second... uh, which is the introduction to the book. The first uh, toledot or generation of these are the generations of the heaven and the earth, or this is what happens to the heavens and the earth, and that was Genesis 2, 4, down through the end of uh, uh, chapter 4. And then we looked at the third toledot, which is what happens to the descendants of Adam, and that covers chapter 5. And then we, we covered what happened to the descendants of Noah, and that's uh, the, the flood episode. And we looked at it in terms of those structural markers in the book of Genesis. And 
now, as, as part of our wrap-up and review of what I've done in the first 11 chapters, what we've learned, and in preparation for uh, our study of Abraham, I'm, I'm doing this review. What I want you to be thinking about is sort of a mindset that what God is communicating to, in, in Genesis, he's communicating initially in the original historical circumstance to Israel. This is the new nation Israel. At this time, they are uh, coming out of the wilderness. They are on the uh, ba- uh, the border of Canaan, and they're about to go into the land. And so Moses writes the Pentateuch, and part of the function of the Pentateuch is to explain who Israel is, why God called them, and what God's plan and purposes are through the nation Israel. And those first two questions are really the answered in Genesis. Why Israel? Why the descendants of Abraham? Why was it necessary for God to call out a special people to himself in order to make this impact in history? What's going on here? And to understand that, we have a, a very brief introduction, which is the first 11 chapters, which focuses on how the human race as a whole ends up in absolute uh, spiritual rebellion. Uh, they have no relationship with God. They've turned their back on God. They are, I mean, the New Testament commentary on this section is really in Romans chapter 1, which talks about how man knew that God exists, but they chose to worship the creature rather than the creator. Now, as God is, through the Holy Spirit, is revealing this to and overseeing the process of inspiration in, uh, in Genesis, what's also taking place here is God is teaching Israel about who he is, who they are, who mankind is, and what God is doing in history. So embedded in these chapters are foundational doctrines. And they start off with Genesis 1. This is a, a way to teach uh, your kids, a way to teach in, in prep school is to start with the Creator, start with who God is and understanding Him. And that's what we see here is a progression of doctrines that are introduced as we go through Genesis. Now, in Genesis 1 through 11, you can make a case that every significant doctrine in Scripture is introduced in Genesis 1 to 11 in one way or another. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the details and all of the different things that originate in the first 11 chapters. We've done that before. But I want to hit the major ones. And this is what we have seen is that in the first chapter, the focus in creation is on who God is and drawing this distinction between God as the creator of the universe as some, something, uh, as someone completely other than creation. This is unique to Christianity. So we've developed this chart. On the left, we have the triune God. That's the modification I have for this week is to put that into a triangle. We have the triune God. This emphasizes his personality because the God of Christianity is a personal God. He is capable of relationship. Now, if you have a God who's capable of relationship, but he... Uh, doesn't have anyone to sh- have a relationship with, and he becomes dependent on his creatures to have relationship. So that makes him a dependent God, which means he's not really God at all by definition. And this is what you have in what would be called Unitarian monotheism. 
and that would be the kind of uh, uh, aberrational, uh, aberrant theology that you have in Unitarian churches where they don't believe in a trinity or in um, Jehovah's Witnesses or in Islam. You have a God who's not capable of relationship. Or, if he is capable of relationship, he is, he is dependent upon his creation because if that God existed before there were any creatures and he was capable of relationship, then, then he's frustrated. He can't have a relationship with anyone because there's no, nothing there. So in the triune relationship of God, we understand that the ultimate environment in the universe is this triune God. And we can, that we can have a relationship with. He's personal and he's infinite. But the Bible presents him as being completely distinct from creation. And only Christianity makes this emphasis. And we've gone over this again and again the last few weeks, but I just want to drill it into your heads. If you can grasp this basic, basic concept, then it really helps you when you are interacting or thinking about any other system of thought. Because every other system of thought, whether it's ancient mythology, such as um, Greek mythology, Babylonian mythology, Egyptian mythology, whether it's talking about ancient philosophy, Greek philosophy, whether we're talking about Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, whether you're talking about, uh, even in many cases, medieval Christianity, or a lot of modern Christianity, you don't have this distinction. In a lot of liberal Christianity where you've had a compromise with evolution, you lose this uh, radical distinction between God as the creator and the universe as a creation. And so the Bible teaches this ex nihilo creation, that God creates everything out of nothing, so that angels, man, animals, vegetation, and matter and energy are totally distinct from God, They don't merge out of God. They don't flow out of His being. They're not created out of His being. They are radically distinct. And see what will happen is you get off, you know, your kids will go to college and they're going to be hit with some sort of liberal professor who's going to say, well, the Bible's creation story just like all the other creation stories. And uh, he's basically going to reject this whole scenario. If you don't start at this point, you don't really have the God of the Bible. It's amazing how many people never really work out the implications of this as the foundation. So we have seen again and again that the Bible presents this radical view of creation. And it is distinct to all human viewpoint systems. And all human viewpoint system, systems ultimately break down to this infinite, impersonal universe. And that if you don't have a God there that's personal and infinite, then the universe becomes impersonal. You're going to either worship God or you're going to worship some aspect of His creation. So then ultimately, what the ultimate environment here is going to be the laws of physics or some gas cloud or random chance. Ultimately, that's all you have when you press back to ultimate reality. Now, how in the world can you generate morals or laws or values when ultimate reality is just sort of an impersonal gas cloud? Where are you going to get values? You're going to generate them from within creation itself, from within experience. So when you get hit with issues like uh, homosexual marriage 
and you get hit with other moral dilemmas uh, from capital punishment, uh, abortion, whatever it may be in, in modern times, war, when you get hit with these moral dilemmas, you don't have anything to draw from but personal experience. In other words, the creatures are going to generate uh, these values somewhere within creation itself so that the creature becomes the ultimate determiner of values and absolutes, what's right and what's wrong. And it's not grounded in something, someone who is infinite and personal, but something that's infinite and impersonal. So we have this circle which describes the con- this concept of sort of being itself. You have this infinite, impersonal thing called being or existence. And I went through this last time. And normally when you use the word being, what you're thinking of is a being equals a person. Right? Something's a being. If out there somewhere there's a being. Well, you immediately, in your thought, you're importing to that concept of being personality. That's Don't do that. That's something you're just pulling in there from, from your own um, subjective experience that hasn't been well trained. Being itself is just existence itself. It does not necessarily have to imply personality. You have the existence of matter, and that doesn't mean that there's person there. There's a personality there. It's just the existence of something. So ultimately, all these other systems go back to some sort of Existent, whether it's uh, in, in modern evolution, it's just matter. You have this, you go back to the Big Bang, you have this little condensed piece of matter that explodes. But what was there the second before it exploded? There was still something there. There was an existent there, something that existed. And it just, everything just sort of generates out from this, this being. And so we have within this circle of being, uh, you have God, angels, man, uh, God, angels, man, animals, uh, nature, and uh, I don't want to do that yet. And nature, all this is part of this one being. So it ultimately breaks down to some kind of pantheism. Always, you're deifying. When you start deifying nature, you start deifying creation, it always breaks down to some kind of man- pantheism. And I believe that ultimately it is going to break down to some sort of uh, pantheistic monism. No matter what happens, there's ultimately there's only one thing that, it, that exists. And this is exemplified by this fun little symbol, the yin-yang symbol. And you have this circle that incorporates all of reality. And you have a white side and a black side, and that indicates good and, and evil. But notice how they're all within the same reality. So ultimately what we'll see is there's no breakdown between good and evil. Now, last time, as we went through our study of... The second element, we looked at the fall. And the fall is the Bible's explanation for the origin of sin, evil, uh, suffering in the universe. And what happens is you get hit with somebody who says, well, how can a good God allow all these evil things to happen? You as a Christian, how can you explain evil? How can a good God, if he's all-powerful, how can he be loving? Because if he's all-powerful then or if he's all-powerful, he would stop evil. So therefore, if he's all-powerful, he can't be a loving God because he allows evil. If he's a loving God, how can he be all-powerful? Because if he were really loving, he wouldn't let these things, let evil and suffering exist. And I always turn that back on someone like that and say, okay, 
Great, you pointed out what could be a difficulty, but how do you explain evil at all? And what you have to drive them to is they can't explain evil. What they have to do is they have to minimize evil. They always reduce evil. Evil for the unbeliever isn't evil at all. It is not as evil, it is not the radical view of evil that you and I hold as Christians. And it can't be, because ultimately they have to say that if everything goes back to this impersonal universe, then how can you explain a real distinction between uh, suffering and violence and death and not and have a perfect environment where there wouldn't be suffering, violence, and death? In Darwinism, death is the mechanism for the survival of the fittest and the advancement from one stage to the next. So if you don't have death, you don't have evolution. Oh, so death then and suffering and violence becomes normal. Therefore, if it's normal, how can you say it's bad? I mean, you can't get to any kind of advance in evolution without death, suffering, and evil. So what, what the evolutionist is really saying is you have no basis for saying that these things are wrong or that they're evil or that they're, they're bad in any way, shape, or form. In fact, if once they call it normal, you can't really distinguish them, can you? That's why I say it ultimately boils down to this yin-yang symbol. You can't really distinguish. They're just different sides of the same reality. But you can't really say it's wrong. And the other, another way that human viewpoint tries to solve, or a second way they try to solve the problem, is just to say it doesn't ex- it, uh, evil doesn't exist. This was the option in, ultimately in some Eastern religion forms of Hinduism and Buddhism, that ultimate reality is in this other uh, sphere and not in the sphere of our experience. That was the approach of uh, Mary Baker, Patterson, Glover, Eddy in Christian science. Is this uh, pain I'm feeling really isn't there. This is just an illusion. Ultimate reality is in another uh, dimension or another, another sphere. So you always end up, and, and that's why you have, when, when you have in, in Western philosophy, when there was, uh, when this was, a lot of this was developed and thought through philosophically in Platonism, you have the uh, transmigration of the souls. You have a lot of doctrines and ideas in, in Platonism that are also present in Eastern religions. So ultimately there's very little difference uh, between the two. All human viewpoint, all I'm saying here is all human viewpoint ultimately breaks down to the same thing. It doesn't matter how many uh, superficial differences there are between the origin stories of the ancient Babylonians or uh, Stephen Gould or any of the other... Uh, isn't that right, Stephen Gould? What? Yeah, Stephen J. Gould. Um, isn't there... I mean, it, ultimately, they're the same thing. They're just the details are changed, but ultimately they break down to the same... Uh, concept of ultimate reality. So the Bible gives us in these first few chapters of Genesis an understanding of who God is and who man is and the origin of evil. And this is foundational to everything that we're going to learn and study and deal with in all of life. This is why this is important uh, to get this down. So in those first chapters, we understand some things about God. And um, let's unpack what we learn about God in those first chapters. In chapter 1, we're presented, in chapter 2, we're presented with certain things about God that 
inform us about his character. Now, on the overhead, I've got the uh, ten attributes we uh, use for the essence of God, that God is sovereign, he is righteous, he's just, he's love, he's eternal life, he's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, he's veracity and immutability. These are the ten attributes of God. Now, let's look at what we learn. If you were a Jew... And you're sitting down, you're reading your Bible for the first time, you're just out there on the plains of Moab, and you're reading Genesis 1 for the first time. What do you learn about God? Well, the very first thing we learn about God is that He is sovereign. He's the Creator. He is the ruler of the universe. He creates everything ex nihilo. That's a Latin phrase meaning out of nothing. There, and, and nothing else, there's no other religion in the world, and I use that term very loosely, there's no other religion in human history that holds to an ex nihilo creation. This is unique to biblical Christianity. And only those who have held to a strict interpretation of the Bible have an ex nihilo Christianity. This makes God the one who is in a position of authority, and he has the right to rule his creation as he determines because he is the creator. He is the sovereign. So we learn that from Genesis 1. He creates man to be his representative. The second thing we learn in Genesis 1, 1, uh, 1 and 2 about God that flows out of this is his omniscience. You say, well, where do you find omniscience in Genesis 1? Well, God has to be all-knowing in order to create the entire universe. He has to understand every system, whether you're talking about the the universe as a whole and everything that keeps uh, the universe, the star systems, the galaxies, keeping everything operating and not just either collapsing on itself or just spinning off um, where it has, where everything disappears and, uh, the, all of the physical laws that rule the, the stars and the sun, all of the, all that all the way down to your, uh, to the, to the microsystems that function at the atomic level. All of that is interrelated. Every aspect of that is interrelated. And the, cr- the creator has to be able to control all of that information. That tells us that this creator has to be omniscient. He has to know everything. And to know everything means he can control history. Second, or third, we learn that he's omnipresent from this. Because if he is, if he is um, creating the entire universe, then he is greater than the entire universe. He is present to every aspect of the universe. So in contrast to these gods and goddesses that the Jews were running into, see, they, they weren't any different from you and me. See, we're, we're operating out here in an environment where we want you send your kids to public school or you, you watch TV, you watch science fiction movies or whatever they are, and constantly we are being bombarded with the mythos, the mythology of modern man in, in terms of Darwinian evolution as a creation myth that controls the thought of modern man. And it's everywhere. But you're not unique. The Apostle Paul faced the same problem in the first century church. Early uh, Christians faced the same problem. They didn't solve it very well in, um, in the early centuries of the church because they're operating in an environment of, of uh, Neoplatonism, and, and many of them never quite escaped 
that cultural or worldly uh, frame, frame of thought. It still influenced their theology. Um, and uh, you go back to the Jews in the ancient world, and they're operating in, the, in Canaan and in Mesopotamia, and when they were in, in Egypt, everybody around them believes in some sort of a pantheistic, uh, non-creator creature uh, cosmos, cosmology. Everybody does. They're just in the minority. They're up against it. They've, there's been a battle over special creation since they came off the ark. Well, probably within about 200 years of coming off, off the ark, there were competing origin theories. And, and so this, there's been a fight for believers to maintain a view in a special creation uh, all along. So we're not... Unique. This isn't something that just shows up in modern 20th century America. It's just that we think we're unusual because Christianity has had a unique position of dominance in the thought of, of especially America in the last 200 years, but we lost that ground 100, actually 150 years ago. So God, we learned that God is sovereign. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's also omnipotent because He's able to create all of these things. He is all-powerful. There is nothing going on inside the cosmos, inside the universe, that is more powerful than God. Now, that has incredible implications. There's nothing that happens either physically, uh, socially, or spiritually that is outside the power of God. He is omnipotent. Then we learn in chapter 2 that there are, for lack of a better term, ethical values, ethical characteristics of God. First of all, we learn that He is love. He creates Adam and the woman to have a relationship with Him. Love indicates this relationship, this personal relationship capacity in God, and His love is going to be different from our love because He's the Creator and we're the creature. But our love is a reflection of His love. But His love doesn't operate in a vacuum. And you're going to see why I say that love is part of this ethic because it, it, it is a, it is a standard. It is not just a feeling. But love in the Scripture is a standard. Jesus says that we are to love one another as He loved us. That makes it a standard. Well, how do we understand what love is? Is that just accepting everybody? You know, that's that's what uh, you hear today with the in the uh, homosexual debate. Well, we just have to accept everybody, forgive them, uh, just uh, uh, forgive the terrorists, just as Jesus would forgive them. Forgive murderers. Don't punish them. Don't. Don't have capital punishment. Just forgive him. Jesus would forgive him. No, he wouldn't. Well, we got two dimensions. He forgives them of their sins, but that doesn't negate the punishment that would be due for a criminal action. And that and and it is clear from Scripture that God judges as part of His love. And see, modern man can't. They they want to draw this this. Um, contradiction between these next two elements in love, and that is his righteousness and his justice. Modern man can't see how righteousness and justice goes with love. It's either one or the other. So they set up this false dichotomy, and they often uh, will throw at us, well, how can, a, how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? And the response is, how can a righteous God not send his creatures to the lake of fire? 
answer that. The question isn't how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire, but how can a righteous God not send his creatures to the lake of fire? Because justice operates in a consistent manner with love, because love puts its emphasis not just on the on the person who violates the standard, but also on the victim who reaps the consequences of that criminal activity or that sinful activity. So that if God were to say, okay, Satan, you're just really a nice guy and you just made a mistake and there's not going to be any real punishment here, well, what about all the damage that his sin has done to uh, millions of angels and millions of human beings? See, that wouldn't be a very loving thing for God to just ignore the impact that that's had on everybody else. But you see, this is the kind of mentality that comes into to a lot of the you know liberal thought, and liberal thought as opposed to criminal punishment. Instead, of, and they want to have rehabilitation because it shifts the focus from the victim to to uh, away from the victim to the person who committed the crime or committed the sin. And somehow, well, they didn't really mean it, and it's not all that bad. And see, you see, we're seeing great examples of this in the way that elements in our society are beginning to try to justify or to uh, minimize the damage that was done by the terrorists on September 11th. And all of a sudden, it's really our fault because we're just a bunch of aggressive Americans out there, and we, you know, we're we're. Um, uh, competing in the world market, and we're so much more successful than everybody else, and and we've gotten out there and we've manipulated uh, different things. Sure, we've made mistakes, you know. That's that's, but that doesn't justify the kind of homicidal activity that took place on September 11th. That was an act of war. So you you when you get divorced from the character of God and understanding reality as God has it, it separates you from understanding reality as it is and then you can't think clearly about the events of the day you can't think clearly about the kinds of legislation going on in Congress you can't think clearly about uh, war you can't think clearly about issues like uh, homosexual marriage because you're no longer within the realm. Of, of reality, you're thinking outside of the biblical uh, parameters, and so you, you you start making things up along the way according to a pseudo standard of our pseudo values and pseudo standards. So we learn in Genesis chapter two that God has a love relationship with Adam and the woman, and the reason she's called the woman is she didn't get her name until the end of Genesis three. She is, he, Adam actually means the man and uh, Adam, but he's called Adam and she's called Isha, which means the woman. And so you, she does not receive the name Eve until after the fall, so I try not to refer to her by the name Eve until later. So you have Adam and the woman in the garden. And they are there in order to serve God, and God has a relationship with him. But this relationship doesn't operate in, a, in an ethical vacuum, does it? In order to have this relationship, God establishes ethical boundaries. And what we learn here is that relationships have to function on the basis of integrity. A relationship cannot function apart from, a rela- from, apart from integrity. And you need to make sure you understand that. That's true about a marriage. That's true about friendship. 
That's true about who you work for in a company or corporation. If there is no integrity at the corporate level, then there can't be a real relationship. You will end up being destroyed because what happens is that when there is no integrity in the relationship, then the relationship serves as a prop to arrogance. It is always serving somebody's self-interest. It's there for self-promotion, self-indulgence, and self-gratification. But when there's no integrity, that relationship is only there for one reason, and that is to benefit uh, the person in charge or the person who thinks they are in charge. So when you're in a marriage and there's a person there that lacks integrity, then that relationship is really a sham. If you are in a church and the leadership of that church lacks integrity, then that relationship between the pastor or the deacons and the congregation is a sham. And, you know, this happens in a lot of churches today. You look around the country, you'll find that a lot of pastors are in there for who knows what kind of... Some of them are there because they're, they're ser- serving their own power lust. Some of them are there because they figured out that they can utilize the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity teaching, and they can utilize that to make themselves wealthy. And you look at some of these guys on on uh, on television and their promotion of the health and wealth gospel, some of these guys have amassed incredible amounts of money by fleecing the sheep. And that's exactly what they've done. And it's just a, a relationship where there's no integrity. And you can see it at numerous levels where pastors... Uh, who lack integrity, somehow are just using the congregation to prop themselves up. And when you have evidence that there is a lack of integrity operating at any leadership level, if you're under that authority, you better better figure out how to get out of that situation as fast as possible, whether that's in in, in your job or in some other situation in life. Sometimes it's not easy to do, and sometimes you can't, but you have to be as careful as possible. Now, so what we learn from these first two chapters is that the God of the Bible is a God of righteous, absolute standards, and that's his righteousness. That's the standard of his integrity. And justice is the application of that integrity, and this works in conjunction with his veracity, which means truth. If God is not true in all that he does and all that he says then he's not trustworthy. So integrity relates to his love, his justice, and his veracity. So we've put it on this chart like this. Integrity highlights these four elements, his righteousness, his justice, his love, and truth. Those four always go together when you're talking about integrity. And that lays the foundation for God's character and for his relationship with man. And this is why God can then enter into unconditional covenants with man where God binds himself legally to a contract is because of the high level of his integrity. And that is something he binds himself to without binding man to it because he knows the sinfulness of, of, uh, of the human race. So the unconditional covenants... The post-fall unconditional covenants are all unilateral with the exception of the Mosaic Covenant, which was in some sense unilateral, but it was temporary. 
I think the last time I taught through that, I started playing around with that terminology, unconditional versus conditional covenants. And um, the Mosaic Law, in some sense, is still unconditional. God promises unconditionally certain things that are just dependent upon himself. But it's a temporary covenant as opposed to a permanent covenant. That's the real issue. It was never designed to be a permanent uh, fixture for Israel. It had a, it was a temporary nature. That's why it's uh, called uh, the Old Covenant and why it is replaced by the New Covenant. Old Covenant, New Covenant terminology, as the author of Hebrews writes, simply indicates its temporary nature. Okay, now... Let's pull this into a different diagram. We've got our the integrity of God. The righteousness is the standard of His integrity. The justice is the application of that righteousness to man. But this is in the always in the context of love. Love means that God always has the highest and best in mind for the object of His love. It is not self-serving. God's righteousness and justice does not operate towards man in a self-serving manner, but it is has as its object, uh, are the best, uh, best in mind for the object of that love, and it always operates in veracity. So those are the four elements of divine integrity, and we see them highlighted in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now, watch, once man sins, there is a break in the relationship with God. And the sin is defined objectively. It's not just some sort of subjective line that is crossed, but he violates a specific commandment, and this changes the fabric of the universe, basically, so that God's righteousness is violated, and in justice, God has to condemn man. There has to be judgment. For God to remain God, he has to judge the violation of that righteousness. But in love, he wants to do what's best for the creature, consistent with his veracity, and so he is going to now express grace to the creature. Grace is defined as God's unmerited favor. It's unearned kindness. Grace can't operate before the fall, because before the fall, man has perfect righteousness. It's not undeserved kindness. He deserves it. He has the same righteousness that God has. And after the great white throne judgment, when all unbelievers are sentenced to the lake of fire, grace doesn't operate anymore. Why? Well, because we're all in heaven without a sin nature. There are no sinful creatures out there for God to be gracious to. So grace is, grace is limited in history. It is bounded by the fall and the great white throne judgment between Genesis 3 and Genesis chapter 20. But something else is also bound and limited between Genesis 3 and Genesis 20. And that's evil. See, when the unbeliever raises this issue of evil, he can't solve the evil problem. First of all, he's got a problem because he's limiting the the significance of evil. And we've already studied that this evening. He limits its importance, its significance. Ultimately, he has to make it part of normal activity. But he can't end evil either. It just goes on and on and on and on. There's no resolution to the problem of sin. He just sits around and wants to throw, uh, you know, throw rocks at the Christian, uh, 
Crystal Cathedral, Crystal House. He wants to knock us down, and, uh, and he doesn't have any real ammunition because the problem is that he can't solve the problem of evil at all. In fact, for him, it really doesn't even exist. So when he picks up that stone of evil and throws it, it disappears. See, and what happens is most Christians haven't thought this through very much, so they get all shaky and they go, well, I can't answer that. I don't know how to solve that. Well, you, you, that's the, well we've, un, we've understood the problem. So it ends in Christianity. There's a real resolution to the problem of sin, and it happens at the cross. And there is judgment of evil. There's judgment of sin at the cross where Jesus Christ pays the penalty for sin. So there's a basis for uh, salvation. And then at the great white throne judgment, uh, all unbelievers are sentenced to the lake of fire, as are Satan and the fallen angels, and that restricts and condemns and cuts off, as it were, God wraps it all up in a package and isolates uh, sin and evil and deals with it finally and completely at the great white throne judgment. Now, at the last time, we looked at the first element, which I mean, the first two elements, creation and the fall. The fall introduces the problem of evil, and it also introduces for us, in an extremely abbreviated sense, the solution to sin, which is salvation. And we pointed that out at the end of Genesis chapter 3 last time, that God clothes, He solves man's problem um, of nakedness, which really which represents a sin problem, by making them tunics of skin, and this is done through animal sacrifice, which pictures the ultimate death of Christ on the cross. Even though Genesis three doesn't give us the information that God explained the the importance of sacrifice and what it represented, we know that it did because of what happens in the next chapter. Uh, Cain and Abel continuing to bring sacrifices uh, to God. And, of course, Genesis chapter 4 shows that the, the sin problem isn't confined or restricted to Adam and Eve, but it is generational now. It's going to affect the entire human race, everyone who descends from him. So in Genesis 3, we have this very uh, abbreviated picture of God's solution. But the picture that the that really that the, the Genesis really gives us of the of salvation is the next big event, which is the flood, which begins in Genesis chapter six. So Genesis four shows the ongoing problem. Genesis four and five really focus on the ongoing consequences of sin. What we see in in in, in an essence in Genesis four and five is the. Uh, consequences of sin on the human race and how it continues to play itself out generationally. From one generation to another, to another, it produces murder and war and all of these other horrible things that go on until man gets to a point when God is not going to put up with it any longer. And this is described in Genesis 1 through 3 as the setup for the third element in the book, the third event in the opening of the book, the flood. And it is instigated by an event that occurs as part of the angelic conflict. And that is this bizarre episode we studied before when the sons of God take human wives. And the sons of God, as we studied, 
is a term that is used for angels. It's always used for angels. You can't find the term sons of God, Beneha Elohim, in the, in the uh, Hebrew. Uh, all, you can't find an example of it meaning anything other than angels. So the biggest problem you've got here is when you look at the Scripture and you look at terminology, you have to trace ter- the usage of that terminology, and there's no basis anywhere for saying that, oh, sons of God here refers to um, the descendants of Seth or d- d- refers to some other element of mankind. It never refers to human beings in the Old Testament. And, and, and I don't just mean the English phrase, sons of God, because sometimes... Other Hebrew phrases are translated that way in the English. This is a precise phrase in the Hebrew, the Beneha Elohim. And they take the daughters of men as their wives. And this later, in the post-flood civilization, the memory of this event will get mixed up with some other things that happen after the flood and will pop up as, as motifs or themes in various... Uh, mythological stories and, and uh, explanations of the creation and various different judgments. But this is an attempt on the part of Satan to destroy genuine humanity. And the theme here that is that we come back to is that which is briefly indicated in Genesis chapter 3. See, when God judges, even when God judges, there's always grace. Grace comes before judgment. And this is the principle that we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And grace always precedes judgment. So what we have in Genesis 3, even in the context of pronouncing the judgment or the consequences of sin in terms of the curse, God also announces his grace plan of salvation that will come through the seed of the woman. Now we have to, we've traced that theme and we see that the seed of the woman is now being attacked by Satan and the fallen angels. And the seed of the woman indicates that the Savior will have to be true humanity. In Genesis 3.15, God said to the woman, uh, but the, there will be enmity, or he says to the serpent actually, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. That is, he being her seed, Jesus Christ, would bruise the serpent's head. That's a picture of a fatal wound. And the serpent, of course, is Satan, that he would be fatally wounded by the Messiah. And you shall bruise his heel. That is, you, the serpent, will have a minimal injury or cause a minimal injury to the uh, seed, and that, of course, is the cross. It did not destroy the Messiah, but led to his resurrection and elevation over all principalities and powers. So Genesis 3.15 is that uh, proto, it's called the Proto-Evangelium, that is the first mention of the gospel uh, in the scriptures. Now this concept, of the, this idea of the seed, is understood by Satan so that he has to destroy the seed so that there can't be true humanity. So he's going to infiltrate the human race with uh, demons. He's, they are, have the ability at this point to transform their immaterial bodies into material bodies that function in all ways just like a human body. And we saw examples of this, and we'll, we'll see them when we study events in Genesis uh, 15, 16, 17, when these angels appear 
to Abraham and they come in and they're tired and they rest and they eat and he washes their feet and they have all the normal bodily functions of a human being. So apparently they, they had the ability at this point or God allowed them to, to, to transform their bodies into a physical body but yet it, they weren't true humanity so that the product of those unions were not genuine humanity. And if it had been allowed to go beyond a certain point, it would have corrupted the entire human race so that no Messiah who was truly human could be born. And this is the issue. So we learn in the first part of Genesis 6 that uh, that sin and sin has continued and expanded through the human race to the point where it can destroy God's plan of redemption. And God is going to stop that because this goes back to the fact that He's sovereign. He controls history. So no matter what moves Satan makes in human history to try to stop God's plan, God is going to be able to uh, check every one of His moves. That doesn't negate volition. See, God allows a certain amount of things to go their course, but if it gets to a certain extent... He steps in in his control of history in order to prevent or restrain evil. This is the same thing that's happening in our church age today. The Holy Spirit restrains evil. And Second Thessalonians 2 tells us that when the restrainer is removed, then the Antichrist is revealed. And so there will be a time when God pulls out all the stops, takes off all the barriers, takes off all the restrictions, and evil is going to just explode in ways that that most of us can't even imagine. And that will take place during the tribulation period. But in Genesis 7 and 8, in the flood, we have this picture of judgment that goes along with salvation. This is always how the, the Noahic flood is used in the New Testament. It's always treated as a literal event. It's always treated as an actual event, but it is always used to teach the doctrine of judgment as well as salvation. So when we look at Genesis, we see a, a hint of grace and judgment in the, and salvation in the curse, but it is really developed in its full, uh, in a full picture with the flood. And we find in verse 8 of Genesis 6, the phrase, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the first mention of grace in the Bible. Now, it's not the first act of grace in the Bible. That occurs the, at, the, uh, uh, at, at the fall when God continues to work with man. He shows up. He provides salvation, provides a covering with him. That's all grace. But this is the first mention of grace, which shows that this is you know, from a divine viewpoint in terms of the Holy Spirit's revelation of these events, this shows us what the Holy Spirit is wanting to teach, what he's wanting to emphasize in this flood event. Now, we get caught up in dealing with many different issues of the flood related to its veracity. You know, I went through details related to the ark and its size and, and the... Um, uh, logistics of the ark and the possibilities of the ark and could this really happen and all of those things. But if we boil it down and we look at the doctrine that is being communicated in the flood event, it is a doctrine of grace and judgment and salvation. And that God get, extends grace to mankind for 120 years 
And Noah is going to be preaching the gospel for 120 years. And no one responds. Or if they did, they died before that period was up. But there's no indication that anyone responded other than his own family. And this is the emphasis in the Noahic flood, is that God has to judge sin. And so there's a couple of things that come out of this that are really hard for people to handle who aren't Christians. And one is, and the the main thing is, that God defines the terms of salvation. God defines the terms of salvation, not man. God says there's only one way out of this, and that's to get on the ark. There there aren't other ways of survival. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. It's this kind of exclusivity that just really irritates unbelievers. They just can't handle the fact that that, that God says you can't get there any other way. There's only one way. And see, this is an, uh, an indication of their ultimate rebellion and rejection of divine authority. It goes right back to that first principle we learned from, from the creation, is that God is sovereign and he has the right to rule his creation uh, according to his own standards, and his own standard is his own righteousness. But man comes along and says, no, we want to, we want to redefine this. This, this is unrealistic. This is un, uh, unacceptable. You can't, you can't do it that way. There needs to be many different ways. I, 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 you know, we're all sincere. You know, we, we're, we're just, we, we all just want to make sure that, that uh, uh, we're all nice people and we just all ought to be in heaven. I mean, why would you, why not? So it's a rejection of everything about God. So the, the un- underlying, the human viewpoint is this rejection of, of divine authority and God's right to determine the basis for salvation. And so this is what happens in Genesis 7 and 8 is God defines that judgment's coming. He has a right to judge because he's the sovereign. And he has a right to determine what the basis is for deliverance. But in love, he always provides a basis for deliverance. See, the unbeliever wants to say, well, that's so harsh. Why is it harsh? He provided a way for deliverance, and he's provided uh, communication for that to everyone. If people reject that, they, they, then they will reap the consequences. So Genesis 7, the event of the flood, is a picture of God's grace, uh, judgment, and salvation. So next time when we come back, we will look at that in a little more detail, what the flood teaches in terms of these broad doctrines related to judgment and salvation, and then a review of the Noahic Covenant. We'll probably take about two more classes in review before we get into the details of Genesis chapter uh, 11, 27, and the records of Terah, that is the... the uh, uh, Toledot of Terah and getting into the specifics on Abram. But keep thinking about this. This is why it's imp- why why does God call Abram? Because man reject rejects who God is, rejects his standard, rejects his offer of salvation, rejects God God's grace again and again and again with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening to to uh, come to a greater understanding and appreciation of who you are and how you work in human history and your grace and your kindness to uh, an undeserving, 
sinful, rebellious human race, that you have given us a revelation of who you are, you have provided a perfect salvation, and the uh, responsibility is on each individual as to how they respond to that revelation and what they do with with uh, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the things that we've studied today and pray that they would challenge us and help us come to a better understanding of how to think biblically. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.